Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, hosted by John Buckman, Ryan McDermott, and me, Elise Lonich Ryan. I'm an instructor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and a faculty fellow with the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. My guest today is Marilyn McIntyre. Marilyn is a steward of words. Throughout her long and distinguished career, she has shepherded language for students and seekers in her college classrooms and during writing and spiritual retreats. A professor of English and the medical humanities, she's taught English at Westmont College and continues to teach in the joint medical program at the Universities of California at Berkeley and San Francisco. She's written or edited over 20 books, which range from collections of her poetry and pedagogical manuals for teaching the medical humanities to works of scriptural and spiritual meditation, such as Word by Word, A Daily Spiritual Practice, and Adverbs for Advent. Her book, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies, is always near my writing desk, and I reach for it often, pleading, Give me a good word, friend. By her own admission, her deepest interests lie in the connections between spirituality, language, healing earth and each other. It's an honor to explore these connections with her. Marilyn, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Words really are the building materials that you use to construct bridges between your subjects and ideas and between the disciplinary fields that you navigate. So I was hoping that we might start with one of your poems to hear your language. And then I thought it would be fun to construct this conversation around four words. And I can give you one word at a time. And then if you would, just free associate about that word. And I'll invite our listeners to do the same. And then we can have a more focused conversation about each of these words and how those associations that came up in the initial conversation, we might dig deeper into them. Thank you. So could we have a poem, please? Yes. It was a pleasure to be assigned to read a poem. I haven't read this one for a while, but I have always loved walking the labyrinth as a particular spiritual exercise that takes me inward and helps me literally come to center. So this is a meditation on the labyrinth. Every turning moves us toward the center. Held safe in this circle, we walk with no thought of haste or gain. The time we have is sufficient. Every year, the turning leaves reiterate their cheerful assurance. The going and the coming are both beautiful, bare branch and blossom alike. Every year, epiphany makes old things new. The past changes. We learn how little we can measure, how great can be the gift of a moment, a pause along the path, when light sets fire to one bush, or a hummingbird hovers in place, moving and still, 
Time gathers into fullness, cresting, breaking, scattering solid to liquid to air. We circle inward, consenting, outward, trusting, and are taught again the folly of laying up treasures. Yesterdays and tomorrows gather in image and story when we need them. But all we have comes down to this. Yes, to what is here, now. Thanks be to God for what is here, now, again and again. Thank you. Thinking about what is here, what is now, the first word that I'd like to think about with you is the word dwelling. Can you associate for a bit about that word dwelling? I can, and I have a story to tell, which is that I understand you picked that word for your own reasons, but you probably don't know that some years ago, I published a little anthology of essays on single words by multiple authors. I just asked them, pick a word that you love and write a five to seven page piece about it. And the word I picked was dwelling. It's one of my favorite words. I love it because it's a participle. I love participles because they're both nouns and verbs. And I really think we're in such a noun-based culture that participles help us move out of simple nouns or simple verbs into that intermediate space where what is is also becoming. But dwelling itself is interesting to me because it's associated in scripture with so much promise that we will dwell with God in the secret places of the Most High, that we will dwell in his house forever. Dwelling is often associated with paradise in scripture. But in a more homely way, I also remember my mother when I was a kid saying if I was frustrated or angry or upset about something, she'd say, well, honey, don't dwell on it. Just, you know, that to dwell on something is sometimes to stay in it, and we need to learn how to dwell on, dwell in, dwell with, in an open-ended kind of way. So it's a word that seems to me to have some fluidity to it. I also think of dwelling as a kind of action in stillness. You know that uh, part in T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets where he talks about at the still point of the turning world, there the dance is. And I think about that paradoxical truth about the fact that everything we see as substance is also all the atoms moving all the time. So dwell seems to me to be an active verb that also suggests a stillness and a centeredness. I like dwelling in. Let me say one more thing about it, too. In the course of many years of teaching literature, I feel as though one of the ways English teachers need to be subversive is to challenge the momentum of the culture to get on, to get, to move forward, to complete, to finish. And it takes a lot of discipline to come back to a place of just finding the moment in the text when the door opened for you, something suggestive triggered a new thought. And to stay there and to dwell there and reflect and ask some questions like, what just happened? Huh, why did that word give me pause? And so helping people preserve that tension in reading between going on and going in 
it seems to me, is a matter of learning again to dwell in a place before we hasten on to get to somewhere else. Thank you. All of that is so lovely. Part of what I think you're getting at here, and I love that you started grammatically, is the paradox inherent in the word, that with dwelling, we have to be able to hold multiple concepts, multiple subject positions, multiple activities within ourselves at one and the same time. And as you said, this takes real discipline and real training. Do you think that a language of dwelling might help us at this moment recover something like patience in a culture where patience is not often lauded or held up as a valuable way of being in the world? Well, I do. And when you say at this moment, of course, one of the things that comes to mind is the pandemic and the fact that in so many states, we're now being asked to stay home and literally to dwell in our dwellings and be where we are. And when I think about what gives me hope, you know, not ultimate hope after the earthly journey, but hope in the moment we're in, part of it is exactly what we're being forced to do, which is so countercultural, which is just stop, be where you are, stay in the present. I mean, if you think about it, Every spiritual tradition offers some form of that teaching to dwell in the moment, to pause, to open your eyes, to see what is, to breathe. And so I think that we're being invited to occupy that space. And occupy, of course, is also a loaded word right now. It is. (laughs) But I think in some very positive way, uh, we can become occupants of the place we are having to be. Yes. And speaking of being occupants, you've used the word space and place. And we're talking about staying, sheltering in place. We might swap out that word sheltering with dwelling, dwelling in place. What are the connections that you see between physical structures and dwelling? Well, my second book after the warmed over dissertation was called Dwelling in the Text. It was a reflection on houses in American fiction Because so many people think first of American literature as a literature of movement and frontier and settlement and so on. Settlement being a gentle word for what we actually did. But if you look through mainstream American fiction, a lot of it, especially Henry James, Edith Wharton, more recently Toni Morrison, have houses at the center of some of their major novels. And the architecture of the house is an articulation of the way people live. And in fact, in Horton's Age of Innocence, in the first six chapters, she begins with a description of space before she introduces any character. So a lot of that suggests that the spaces we design and then inhabit are expressions of the self. They are also what forms the self. One of my favorite architects is Christopher Alexander, who wrote two beautiful books, one called A Pattern Language and one called A Timeless Way of Building, which almost reads like a devotional. I just love this book. But he starts with questions like, what is a human space? So I think that since we are embodied beings, we really can't separate our orientation in space and the ways we inhabit the spaces we have and what we do inside those spaces to design them from who we are and who we hope to be. 
I wonder if you then think that we need to be having more serious conversations about the medical spaces that we inhabit, especially in this moment of the pandemic. You have taught, you've written, you've spent much of your professional life thinking about this connection in the medical humanities. So how does a concept of dwelling, thinking about what is a space, who are we as people in those spaces, really give us an opportunity to think newly and radically about medical buildings, hospitals? That's a wonderful question. And of course, we can't just tear down the hospitals and redesign them. But one of the interesting controversies in the course of this pandemic has been, at what point do you go to a hospital? And so many people are saying, don't go to a hospital. If you can possibly avoid it, here's how to care for each other at home. That reminds me of a book that was written, I don't know, in the 60s or 70s by Ivan Illich called Medical Nemesis. He wrote two famous books, one critiquing the educational system and one critiquing the medical system. And he contrasts uh, industrialized or post-industrial American medicine with the rather more gentle, grounded practices. He uses Italy as an example, but in some European countries, and especially in rural areas, where the default is people take care of each other. And Folk medicine is not altogether dead, and everybody understands something about basic caregiving and that the first resort is to ask, how can I care for you and help your body to heal itself where you are? And so the hospital is a second resort. And in fact, at the beginning of hospitals, during the plague years, hospitals were places people went to die and hopefully to die gently, but um, they were repositories for people who really couldn't be cared for otherwise. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have hospitals or high-tech medicine, but medicine is deeply embedded in culture. One of the books that I have taught from frequently was published in 1995. It's a little book by an international medical journalist called Medicine and Culture. And she makes the point in there looking at American medicine as opposed to Western European medicine, that American medicine is more aggressive, it's more institutionalized, we tend to look for cures rather than uh, emphasize prevention and support of the body. So I think that coming back to the place where we dwell in our bodies, we dwell in our family circles or our circles of trust, we care for what our deepest common sense says we need to care for our health. We care for prevention and support before we rush to cure and intervention. That would be a radical retrieval if we could move back in that direction. And actually, the pandemic may be helping us to do that. I hope so. When you talk about going back, retrieving things that we've lost, and retrieving this richer, deeper sense of dwelling that radiates out in these different directions, it does make me wonder, where did you get your sense of dwelling from? Was it from your home and family? How did you come to such a robust understanding of this concept? Well, our family didn't have very much money, but we did have a lot of conversation. And it has surprised me in my adulthood to recognize how many families don't just sit around the table and talk to each other. I feel as though that was one of the great blessings of my childhood. I lived in a three-generation household. My parents and grandparents were always there. And 
my grandpa was from the deep south and he loved to tell stories. And so we'd hang out at the dinner table and listen to stories. They were very Faulknerian. He'd kind of start in the middle and you kind of had to pick up who all these cousins were in the course of listening. You know how Faulkner starts a lot of his sentences with because, like you're dropping right in the middle of a conversation. So my sense of home wasn't that we had a beautiful big home. We didn't. It was small. It had one bathroom, you know, by American standards. It was kind of lower middle class. But I felt safe there and I felt heard there. And I felt as though my brother and I were certainly expected to respect our elders, but we were fully authorized as participants in the conversation. I think the word koinonia in Greek means participation. So I think that part of my sense of belonging has to do with that authorization, that this is a place where you have a voice and you belong. Wendell Berry talks so much about belonging as the thing that makes beloved community, that everyone has a sense of belonging. So I want to follow up with two questions. The first, you spoke about being authorized to speak in your own home, the first place you felt safe and heard. So my first question is, can you trace your own desire to write and to have a voice, a public voice in the world to this sense of dwelling in a home where voice was given real consideration? Yeah, I think that probably whatever we call gifts or callings are mysterious ultimately, because why would I have that desire and someone else has a desire to make music or dance? But I do know that in my home, words were really valued and it was just routine, especially for my mother and grandmother, who were both teachers, and my dad, who was a very articulate man, to just pause over some of the words that were said and to talk a little bit about the word itself, which seems to me to be such an important habit for maintaining our sense that words are malleable and that they're, they live in a kind of fluid medium and that they can go different directions. But wait, what exactly do you mean by that? Can we talk about that for a minute? Those are really important questions. And they're genuine questions. They're not accusations. They're not uh, gotcha moments. Exactly. They're, in, in, they're invitations to conversation, right. as you said. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean by that? I think now is often heard as a challenging question. So learning, I've just spoken with a group of seminarians. I taught a course this last semester for seminarians, people who will be involved in pastoral care and preaching. And we spent a whole session talking about what do you mean? What do I mean? Wait, what do I mean? You know, just how meaning is something that actually is crafted in the moment and in the context of the sentence and the conversation in which it emerges. So I do love, as Ezra Pound saying, go in fear of abstractions, because so much political discourse is abstractions, which are veils behind which you can hide. And so I have actually given assignments where I've said you don't get to use any words that end in T-I-O-N or N-E-S-S or M-E-N-T or I-S-M. <laughs> okay, now go. That's, right. No, that's great advice. I mean, I remember my graduate advisor telling me, you're using words as ideological shorthand. You're not actually discussing meaning. And that was really revelatory for me. And I needed yes. to hear that and it's in that a, moment. 
It's an endemic pathology in graduate school. It is. It is. <laughs> That's an entirely different conversation, <laughs> which maybe we can have uh, at another time. I wanted to go back. I said I had a second question to follow up on. You mentioned the beloved community that Wendell Berry speaks of and this word koinonia. And I think another thing that many of us are considering at this moment is that as we are dwelling or sheltering in place, there are people for whom their place is no shelter. They cannot dwell in peace with themselves or others. So for those of us who do feel sheltered, who do feel a sense of dwelling, how might we act responsibly in this moment, thinking about that idea of dwelling to give peace, to offer something of this beloved community to those who do not have it? Yeah, there are more and more unhoused people. And now that evictions are happening again, although I just pray that they will be stopped. But I don't know why anyone thinks that putting more people out on the street is going to serve the common good. Anyway, that's its own conversation. But I think since we do have so many unhoused people or people who live in crowded or precarious spaces, and since we are being told if we are safe and privileged to stay in our homes, the best thing I can figure out to do right now is make sure that we understand who locally where are the contact points? Who's taking food to shelters? Who is providing shelter? Who is putting on a mask and going and talking with people and assessing their needs and plug into those organizations? And I say local because even though I really think it's important to support the big ones, AFSC and Mercy Corps and Doctors Without Borders and so many of these wonderful groups that are doing work in crisis-ridden places, it's also important to know what's happening two miles away. I live in a little suburb. I walk around the block. I actually know there is one family on our block that could probably use help, but mostly we don't see unhoused people wandering around our particular streets. So it behooves me, I think, now and then to drive down and at least witness who's there there's a church downtown where a lot of homeless people just come one wander into the church because it opens its doors. So know where they are, see their faces, know who's helping them, and ask, how can I help? I'm over the age where they allow us to volunteer. And now that COVID is affecting younger people, I think some organizations are being much more careful about who gets to volunteer. But I like the image that I picked up somewhere of just find the place to plug in. You know, there's a play, there's an outlet for all of us. That's right. <laughs> so just find that outlet. And, you know, if it means giving money, if it makes, means making phone calls, if it means uh, writing op-eds, there's always something. Right. As a friend of mine said, there's many lanes on this highway, which is just another way of saying plug in where you find that outlet. And thinking about these issues puts me in mind of another paradox, productive paradox of dwelling. And that's the particular and the universal, which is maybe the biggest <laughs> paradox that we have, that there is something very particular and very local about dwelling. It is the face of our neighbor. And it's also this big concept of loving your neighbor and this big concept of God, the God who makes God's dwelling amongst God's people. 
the God who became flesh, totally imminent and totally transcendent? This is a question too big to answer, and I know that in asking it, but what does dwelling teach us about God and about how we might love God? There's so much language of habitation and the promise of habitation made to a nomadic community. And so another of these wonderful historical tensions that says the ways of God have a wide range is between the nomad and the settler. But I want to go a different direction with your question, which is that in a time of overwrought nationalism, when national boundaries are becoming impediments to understanding our place on earth, I really think it's time to start thinking of ourselves as earthlings again, rather than in terms of our national identity, because national identity has become poisoned, I suppose, for lack of a better term. And nationalism has always been a dangerous matter. I have wondered often what it would be to begin children in the early years of learning where they live to start, instead of saying, in my case, you live in California, to say, here's your watershed. This is the bioregion we live in. You live near this range of mountains. How far are you from the ocean? But just to give kids a, a basic sense that you have a place on Earth and not a place that's, you know, square and pink like Colorado on a map. And I think, <laughs> I think the little prince is a fun place to start. Remember the little prince? How he has his planet and he lives on his planet? Mm -hmm. I would love to see little kids just start out thinking of themselves as living on a planet that actually has a life and we get to participate in the life of the planet. That's right. Because it also speaks to these issues of scale and orientation. And if you can move amongst those different orientations and perspectives and recognize yourself in a scale and how you relate then dwelling becomes a way of relating to your environment, to the people in that environment, to the creatures, and ultimately for Christians to Christ and to believers to God. So that's really a worthwhile way of thinking about dwelling. I have one more question about dwelling before we move on to our next word. And I wonder, do you think, is it possible then to be lonely in one's dwelling place? And how might loneliness and dwelling exist in a kind of productive relationship, if you think there is one? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people are lonely now. And one of the things that I think needs to be talked about is touch deprivation. There was a woman interviewed on Amy Goodman, Democracy Now!, which we watch every day. Lori Garrett, who's an expert on epidemic but she lives alone. And at the end of this very professional interview, she said, I am so hungry for a hug right now. It's making me crazy. For somebody to just say that in public is to confess that we aren't meant to be alone, that dwelling is, is partly a community idea. But I think that along with the other invitations that come in this moment, one is to experience solitude, not just as being cut off or isolated, but being called inward. And if here is where we need to be, how about if I sit with that and consent to it? And that's when loneliness can turn into productive solitude or be a moment of growth. Thank you. So the next word that I hope and I think does build from this idea of dwelling is compassion. Can you riff on compassion for a bit? I can, but I wonder why that was one of the words that you picked for this 
occasion. I like the root of it. I like the with bearing. Uh, and I think I, I chose it because to me, it seems as though we've allowed it to become a weak word when I think compassion requires enormous strength. And so I wanted to explore that idea of strength and resilience in this very old word. <laughs> yeah. To bear with, to suffer with, it, it is a word whose etymology really needs to be foregrounded whenever possible. It's an interesting word in Christian circles, too, because I think in some bandwidths of the Christian world, people hear it as a Dalai Lama kind of word. That's a word that's been uh, appropriated by people who dabble in Eastern philosophies or something, which I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think it's a word to retrieve that brings us to a kind of connectedness with people from all spiritual traditions. I said earlier that every spiritual tradition teaches some version of be in the moment, be in the present, uh, take no thought for the morrow. And I think similarly, all spiritual traditions recognize that we are called to empathize with one another and to recognize in one another another version of self. When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, you can do a deep dive into that as my brother did a little chapel talk one time where he went so far as to say, love your neighbor because he is yourself. So that's a little bit mind-blowing, but it is to say we are so deeply connected like water in an underground stream, and we all have the roots of our life and being in God who created us as expressions of God's own life energy. We all have our life and breath from the same spirit. So in that sense, I think compassion means that if one person is suffering, we all suffer. I think compassion means I understand that if you aren't housed, that really matters to me. And so why should the plight of the Palestinians whose homes are being raised or the plight of the people in L.A. who are in tent cities have anything to do with me? And it is to say, first of all, that could be me. Second of all, as long as they're in that condition, the ripple effect is going to involve me. But it means connecting a lot of dots. It's overwhelming. And one thing that I hear a lot from folks who are engaged in this work is that right now, especially, they're tired. How do we develop resources for ourselves, but also for others, for a mutual uplift of compassion that doesn't weary us to the point of inaction or numb us to the pain that we see around us? I think two things. I'll answer your second question first. What immediately leapt to mind are some very dear friends of ours who are on the East Coast, so we don't get to do this anymore. But for years, they've gathered people in their home once a month for a sing. And if you have an instrument, you bring an instrument. They have these collections of big collections of songs, folk songs, hymns, traditional songs, various kinds. And they just sing. There's no talk about it. There's no conversation about what good we're doing. It's just come hang out and sing. They don't even offer refreshments. It's just singing. And it's so restorative. So I think, again, as a time of retrieval, there's something about the life-giving practices that have been indigenous to every tribal culture in the world of dancing and singing and even humming. I don't know if you remember the movie Glory, 
that came out years ago about the, this African-American regiment that goes into one of the most dangerous battles at Fort Sumter in the Civil War. And the night before, they gather around a fire, and as they ask people to speak and give them permission to speak their fear, they're all kind of humming. They do this thing that African-Americans do so well in worship, which is just to say, uh-huh, uh-huh, and then that turns into a hum of affirmation and uplift. So there's that. I think that we need to create safe spaces in which to rest, in which to say, I'm tired without feeling that you're making an inappropriate capitulation. And I think to make compassionate assignments, I've always thought it was insane to have interns in the medical system have 36-hour shifts. And some, some schools and hospitals don't do that anymore. But really to understand the deep importance of rest in order for any of us to do the work that we have to do is to restore some sense of humility that nobody can do this alone and no one is indispensable. So that weariness itself calls us back into community. It's beautiful. Would you mind saying that one more time? Right. The weariness itself calls (laughs) us into community, right? We have to depend on each other's to be strong when we are weak. That's right. I think that's too often elided, that weakness, to use your word from earlier, is seen as a capitulation or is unjustly associated with particular peoples, that they're weak or if they were stronger, this wouldn't have happened, when really this is a call to those of us who may have the emotional, financial resources to step in and and raise up. One other thing I wanted to say about compassion that I know I'll forget if I don't say it now, but that is that I remember somewhere in Caring for Words, I made the point that um, precision or specificity is an instrument of compassion, which is to say, if I really want to keep my heart open, I have to keep my imagination open, I have to keep my eyes open, and to say exactly what is going on. Again, not to retreat into abstractions, but to say this wound is festering or suppurating, you know, just really name the thing you see instead of, yeah, a lot of people are suffering here. Or to say this woman is trying to nurse her child in the rubble and she hasn't had water for two days. I'm thinking of an image I saw of people after a bombing in Syria. And to use these these very um, grounded words, not only for squalor and sadness, but also for joy. I get a little tired of the word joy, which is a terrible thing to admit in a sort of Christian environment. But I think I'd just rather somebody name something that has given them a moment of delight and epiphany than to say, what are your joys and sorrows? You know, just I feel like that's a word that for me has worn thin. But those, there's a lot, there's a kind of Christianese that is its own vocabulary of abstraction. And I just think of the way kids point and say, hey, look at that. Look at that caterpillar. Let's see how many legs it has. You know, just the specificity of that way of seeing is restorative. It is. And it's freeing, I think, too, because it again calls you into relationship in a way that you can respond precisely. You know where you are in the world when you distinguish between the joy of waking up on a morning when you realize you're no longer ill and you see a sunrise versus 
the joy of a first grandchild's laughter. They might both be joyful, but they register in a different way, and you understand something about the person experiencing it, and therefore can share more about yourself with precision. It makes me wonder if you think that compassion can be a stewardship strategy for our relationship with the natural world, with the earth right now, which is suffering in a variety of very precise ways. Yes. I certainly do. And I think that two books I have recently read, which I would highly recommend, have helped me to deepen my sense of compassion for the natural world, which I thought was already pretty lively. But one is The Overstory by Richard Powers. It's a story about generations of people, but the story is as much about the trees among which those people live and move as it is about the people. So it keeps reinforcing an imaginative sense that we are living among other living orders, other living beings who share and converse and offer us their gifts and have this quiet presence that changes our lives in ways that we've lost the capacity to register. It's a superb novel. It's beautifully written. I have to say that. There are whole, so many sentences where you just want to stop and say, oh, look at that sentence. <laughs> um, so that's one. And the other is The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Wolleben, who's a forester in Germany. And it's, it's not a novel. It's written in a very different register. But both of those, and a book I read years ago called Should Trees Have Standing?, Meaning, should they have legal standing? You know, animals are protected legally from cruelty. We don't do that for other living beings. And I'm not saying you should never cut down a tree, but I love the fact that in some Native American cultures, they have these practices of thanking whatever being it is they are killing to eat or make canoes out of for its offering of itself. So there's a an acknowledgement that life gives to life, that death is part of life, but that if you take a life, you have to know it has to be purposeful and it has to be proportionate and appropriate and you give thanks for it. I'd love to see us get that back. That really brings me to another question that I, I had, which is our relationship to our industrial food system in this country, which uh, has been, if we didn't already know, COVID-19 has certainly laid bare the cruelties of industrial farming, of the working conditions in slaughterhouses, and even the, the practice of most industrial slaughterhouses, meatpacking plants, the ways in which food has been co-opted into these logistical systems where we can't even get basic items like milk to the people who need them, yielding an enormous amount of waste. Uh, when people are starving. Can we be compassionate toward our food and thinking with exactly these ideas about understanding that yes, death is a part of life and we are always taking life into our life and it's being re repurposed biologically, but how can we be more compassionate toward those processes so that we're not constantly caught up in these, again, logistical systems of the food supply chain? Part of it, I think, starts with language. Well, for me, a lot of things start with language. But I was thinking about, as you spoke, about just calling animals livestock and the language we use that make 
trees into resources or living beings into products. If you simply give them their names, if you say a cow or a pig instead of livestock, it's just a little acknowledgement that it's a particular order of being. It's a life. So that's part of it. I think there's so much to say about the food system, and I do think it's part of, it's one of the great American tragedies that we have distributed our vast capacity to produce food so badly that many people live in food deserts and we've denatured it, processed it. So I'm really grateful for the number of documentaries and books that have come out in recent years about the food system. I remember a student asked me one time, well, aren't you just speaking from a place of privilege when you encourage people to eat organically farmed food? Because a lot of people can't afford that. And my answer to that is, yes, that's a compassionate question, but if we can afford it, I think we should afford it because the more of us who do afford it, the more we're supporting a way of producing food that can then become more affordable. I think you have to think system-wide. And again, to come back to plugging in, you have to think, where am I plugging into this process? I remember giving a chapel talk at Westmont years ago that when we examine our consciences or think about sin, it's the tendency, I think, often of some Christian fellowships to think about sin almost entirely in individual terms, like have I lied or cheated or stolen or committed adultery, and not to ask oneself, what am I participating in? What am I part of? Do I pay attention to whether or not my clothes were made in sweatshops that are making 13-year-olds work 14 hours a day? Or am I paying attention to how my food was produced? Or whether crops are being poisoned by glyphosate? and what that's doing to the children who are being fed from them, and so on. So I think that wideness of perspective you were talking about, where do I live locally, how do I live globally, it comes back to that slogan of um, think globally, act locally. Think globally about the food systems, act locally when I walk into a store. And some of acting locally, I think, means asking questions. Like, are you aware that this product is really problematic and I'm, I'm wondering if as a customer I can ask you to re reconsider whether you want to stock your shelves with this. I think having the courage just to have those conversations is a good piece of activism. I agree. And as you said, they can be compassionate questions, courageous and compassionate questions. I've been encouraged to see recently that there has been an uptick in subscriptions to community-supported agriculture, CSA shares, that people are demanding more farmers markets and that they happen more frequently, that people can get to them and that there are uh, governmental programs like food stamps, like WIC services that can be used at these uh, farmers markets. So precisely as you were saying, folks that may otherwise not be able to afford the grass-fed beef or go to the farmer and buy the the side of cattle or get the milk from the local dairy they still have access to it. And again, this is the way in which that sense of compassion, and correct me if you think that I'm wrong here, is a way we're all bearing up under this crushing system of the food culture that we've created and trying by our equal weight to make it more equitable. That's right. And another version of that is community gardens. The urban, there are movements in various urban centers to create urban community gardens, which even during the pandemic, 
doesn't have to involve everybody being there at once, but people can arrange schedules so they can go uh, and participate in the garden work and take vegetables home. And this is such a, I think, crucial part of children's education who have so little exposure to the green world. I want to say one other thing about the local and the global. We haven't yet mentioned that part of the moment we're in, of course, is the way in which the profound injustices around racism have come to a head, which to me also is a hopeful sign that we are at a tipping point and that finally, maybe, we, the arc will be bending toward justice in some new ways. But I'm thinking about all the T-shirts I've seen recently that say, I can't breathe, and how both Eric Garner and George Floyd, among others, who have been subjected to that horrific death of being suffocated with a knee on the neck. The last thing we heard them say was, I can't breathe. But when I see it on a t-shirt, I think about the Amazon being torn down, you know, that the rainforests are the lungs of the earth. And looking at images of the pollution over Beijing or some other cities, LA being one of them. And so I think The I can't breathe is a sentence that connects us to something that's happening to all of us, that one of the forms of sin in this world is the way in which we choke out the spirit, which in Hebrew is ruach, which is the same word as breath. So I think breathing and giving thanks for breath and even breath practices are a way of staying aware of helping each other just breathe, making room for the spirit. Thank you. In keeping with that, will you read one more poem before we transition to our next words? Sure. This is a poem that I wrote after uh, Westmont College had a huge fire run through the campus. It's in the hills of Santa Barbara. It's pretty dry country and 15 faculty homes burned along with a couple of classroom buildings and a dorm. So it was a huge moment in the history of that college. And I asked one of my friends on the faculty there who had three daughters, is there anything we, I I didn't live on campus. Is there anything we can do for you? And the first thing she said was write a poem for the girls. I thought, okay, then (laughs) that was such a surprising request. So that's where this poem came from. But I thought about living in the absence of their house was there one day and then it was gone. So this was the poem that came out of that. But of course, I've grown up in California. There's a fire season every year, and the fires have gotten more disastrous. And it's part of the global warming that we are witnessing. Every breath a teaching. Receive, release, receive again. In the space of an hour, the wind passes over, and it is gone. The house, the long table, the leather chair, the bed where you lay awake nights and watched branches against the sky, and those are gone too. Now you begin to map the open spaces your body knew once, how many steps it took from desk to doorway, how to reach without thought for a glass in the cupboard, and where to turn at the sound of the ringing phone. You move into unknowing, Rerouting the thousand tracks of habit that seem so like safety. You knew which drawer always stuck, 
which latched to close quietly when your sisters were sleeping. The old shoes worn to a perfect fit are gone, and the chipped mug you loved. Day by day, new items appear on the long inventory of loss, and you let go again. Weeping endures for a night, and returns sudden and annoying on the road in mid-afternoon. But in the odd moment, joy comes without warning. Wrapped in irony or curious relief, it brings its small surprises. It rises among the ashes. Unsummoned laughter breaks from a dry throat. We learn by going, one poet said, and another, we shall not cease from exploration. Feeling your way into these open spaces, you find what you didn't know you needed. Behold, I make all things new. Old words, new meanings, new shades of hope. Grief dissolves slowly in a sea of grace, and you are upheld even in the dark and the empty spaces. The burned branch leaves an open starscape. What is not there aches like a phantom limb, even as you discover what remains. Already small birds alight among the unburnt leaves. Where helicopters and sirens cut the air, it opens. Newly exposed, gasping in outrage at air and light, babies take their first breath, and then the next. Every loss moves us into new places of habitation. Take dominion. Make your home here on the earth as you find it, vulnerable and yielding, where ash feeds the soil. Sorrow shapes our stories, leaving scars like runes. Thank you. My next word is big and complicated. It's truth. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm sure we can figure it out in the the space of this podcast. (laughs) Uh, What are some of your associations with this word truth? Well, it's such a hard word because first of all, it's a noun. And I, I think about truing. It can be used as a verb, actually, in architectural terms, sort of truing the joint where they are in balance. So to think of truing in that sense is to bring something into alignment or to make it sturdy and to bring it also into relationship with whatever is going to be appropriate living tension. So that's a really interesting way to retrieve a notion that's been so battered into a noun that is really stiff and unyielding. But I know that in some faith communities, there is this notion that we have the truth, that God gave us the truth. And there is certainly a way in which I believe that, but I am uncomfortable with the notion of having it, both with having and with it. Since we have the truth is a very constraining, narrowing, proprietary notion about truth, which Jesus said will set you free. Once you know the truth, you are free indeed. And that means coming into relationship. I think that the place I want to come back to with the word truth over and over again is it's relational. And when Jesus said, I am the truth, first of all, that sent it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But I am the truth means that truth is embodied. If you want to know what's true, follow me. Come with me. 
I'll show you. I'll be it. So I feel as though the way I can stay in relationship to the notion of truth is to think of it as embodied and active and living and in the moment, as opposed to something that's fixed and nailed to a door. Thank you. I couldn't agree more personally. And that's exactly where I wanted to go with this conversation. I have to admit the sense of truth is relational and uncovering some of its earliest meanings. This word etymologically goes back to old English. We have it and it meant a pledge. Um, we still use it in that word betroth. It's related to the marriage ceremony that you pledge your fidelity. It's a way of indicating loyalty trust, which are all relational concepts uh, that you, even with oneself, that's a kind of relationship. And as someone who studies Renaissance literature, you start to see that shift in that moment between these older medieval concepts of friendship and loyalty, where you exchange rings or a cloak, or you let your friends sleep in your bed with you as a way of maintaining some kind of truth, troth between you. And then the shift toward contracts. And as you said, kind of nailing something up on the wall, putting a signature down, which now we, we think is sacrosanct. Uh, get it in writing is the phrase that we have. But that notion seems too narrow. So how can we talk about things like friendship? and loyalty, pledging, fidelity, faithfulness as truth. Well, what that brings to mind is one of my <clears throat> favorite lines in one of Wendell Berry's poems where he says, and I think he's speaking of marriage, he says, love changes and in change is true. So that when you pledge your troth or you make a commitment, you say, I'm going to stay in this. I'm going to live into this. And change will come, and love does change, as everyone who's been married for a long time knows. And that if fidelity means you fear change and you dig in your heels, I think it's a deadening idea. I've heard people say sorrowfully, she's just not the girl I married. And I think, duh, <laughs> of course she's not. <laughs> And you're not the guy she married either, so get over it, because now you're 20 years along in your journey, and you've turned a few corners. And so there's another poem about marriage by John Ciardi that says, I marry you. I, I can't quote it verbatim, but it's called I marry you. And the idea is, I marry you every morning. I marry you every day. I enter back into this. And I'll keep doing that. And we'll see what we see. And we'll have to work out what we work out. This also takes me back to conversations I've heard among biblical translators about the I am, what's Yahweh, and how many ways people have struggled in English to render that. And one is, I am who I am. Another is, I will be who I will be. And I, I don't know Hebrew, so I don't know if that's closer or not, but I think it's worth pondering. I will be who I will be. You watch. And when Jesus answered people who want to know who he is and what he's up to, said, is follow me. It's kind of like that. We'll do it as we go along and it will unfold, but it will keep unfolding. The active spirit always unfolding, always new. 
you mentioned translation, which is something else I wanted to ask you about because I know that you know multiple languages and in caring for words in a culture of lies, one of your stewardship strategies for language is to attend to translation. And so often, if we're talking about translation at all, we talk about it in these terms. Is it a true translation? Is it faithful to the original? And I think what people mean, whether they know the original language or not, is, is it word for word? Which is, again, a very narrow way of thinking about it. And so could you speak a little bit about why you think translation, again, this movement, difference, also gets us toward truth? I think it's an exercise in humility, for one thing. I have translated a couple of books, and I don't know exotic languages relative to English. I know some French and German, you know, European languages and a little Latin. But I have hung around with people, including my husband, who have studied Greek and Hebrew. And I'm so grateful when pastors who are preaching will just lift up a particular word and say, you know, maybe you're not aware of this, but in Hebrew, this is how this opens up. So I think that translation is always a reminder that there are other ways of putting it, that language is an architecture and we live inside the space that is provided by the English sentence. We live inside our syntactical spaces. But if we spoke Mandarin Chinese, which is an ideographic language, we wouldn't even have that architecture. We would have something completely different and we'd have to move around in it differently so that, I think, helps avoid the very xenophobic, insular worldview that says, as I saw in a bumper sticker, once God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And I think, well, God didn't speak Jacobian English either. <laughs> <laughs> or I saw a posting on Facebook recently, a friend said, there are no white people in the Bible. Take as long with that as you need. But so there was no English spoken in the ancient world either. So I think translation has that. But also, it's so enlivening if you're working as a translator to find a way of putting something that will render it in English and do justice to what it does in the other language that can't possibly happen in English because we don't have that. And I think the nearest many of us come to that is trying to translate adult ideas for children. I mean, I remember the day my five-year-old wandered into the kitchen and said, Mommy, what's a virgin? (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I took a moment with that. (laughs) Sort of, what does she need to know? What is she ready to know? Where does the question come from? Which I finally asked her. And some Catholic friend had mentioned the Virgin Mary. And so I could speak about it in that concept. But I think often in teaching, we are finding ways of putting things that will generously enter into someone else's contextual field. And any teacher knows they're not ready for this until I help create an environment in which they can hear it more complexly. Yes, that's all great teachers set up the room, literally, for their students before they walk in so that they can succeed. We can all succeed together in that classroom. You spoke just now and earlier in our conversation about words in context, and we've been having a really rich conversation about relationship in each of these words, and it seems so important with truth. And your most recent book, 
which just came out this year, which you've said is kind of a sequel to caring for words in a culture of lies. You talk about this, like putting words in their contextual field, understanding that they move in a fluid medium. And in the introduction to that book, you cite the former president of Fuller Theological Seminary and his phrase, convicted civility. What is convicted civility? Well, my understanding of it is that conviction doesn't have to make you uncivil and civility doesn't have to make you wimp out on your conviction. So convicted civility says, here I stand. And at the moment, I am convinced of what I see. I have opinions. I have made some judgment calls. I am committed to some things in the world. And I am open to hearing anything that might provide more evidence, more information, might help modify something or show me something I'm not seeing. So that, you know, that gesture I associate with some statues of the Buddha with the open hand that's receiving and the upraised hand that is protecting or preventing. That's the tension to be held, that conviction is the upraised hand that says, I'm going to protect what I have come to believe is true and worthy of protection. And the open hand says, teach me. If you have something to teach me, I want to hear. And even if it's painful, and even if it's challenging, I can afford to do that. I'll pause over that word for a moment, because I love telling this story. When I first started teaching college after getting my degree, an older professor in my department just sort of took me under her wing, and I was so grateful. I don't know why she did, but she took a shine to me. And every few weeks, she would call. She was from the Deep South, too. I loved her accent. I'd pick up the phone, and she wouldn't even say hello. She'd say, well, honey, how are you? <laughs> and so we would talk, and she became a kind of confessor. But sometimes I'd be complaining about one person or another, and she'd say, honey, you can afford to let that go. Or you can afford to give that more time. Or you can afford to wait on that. You can afford to explore. You can afford to just be silent on the matter for a while. You can afford to skip that meeting. But the word afford was one of her big gifts to me because it was always a reminder. In effect, you have spaciousness in your life. You have access to enough spiritual and intellectual resources to be comfortable letting other people have their space and have their say, because you're strong enough not to just capitulate when you hear a new opinion. So I've really hung on to that. That's been very helpful. Yeah. And it, in environmental psychology and affordance is something like a niche, that area where certain activities are possible, they contain the options, and then they can be let go of when you don't need that affordance anymore. And your words put me in mind of a friend of mine who also was a really inspiring teacher. And she would start her classes by reminding her students that what she was asking them to do every day was to pay attention and that attention always costs something. And we have to find ways to be able to pay that price, to afford it in some ways. And this makes me think of the flip side of truth, telling lies and the way that that diminishes what we can afford to do. My favorite novel is The Brothers Karamazov, which is really a second scripture to me. Uh, <laughs> and toward the beginning of the novel, the Karamazov family, as I'm sure you know, is there meeting with the elder monk, Zosima. 
And it really turns into a farce. The father does what he does best, which is puts on a show and all these histrionics. And Zosima just smiles and goes along. And he gives him just one piece of advice. Stop lying. You know, Dostoevsky was always claiming that he had no moral to preach. He wasn't didactic. He was really trying to figure out what he believed via his novels. But I think that was maybe the big question for him. Why do we lie? And how do we stop? Why do you think we capitulate to lies so often? Well, lies have so many uses. They are convenient. They are comforting. They allow us to avoid what's painful. You know, we tell ourselves lies. I had a colleague at Westmont who had a number of other interesting character idiosyncrasies, but one was that the, at the, in the little tagline in his emails under his signature, it read, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. <laughs> so oh my. every time you got an email from him, <laughs> yeah. you'd get that reminder. <laughs> but it's an interesting line, right? That, that lying is terribly easy for us to fall into. And to talk about little white lies is to really start on a slippery slope. But I think now that we're, you know, we're looking at big lies again, big lies of the kind that Hitler talked about, that if you tell people a lie big enough, they'll believe it. And public discourse has really succumbed to normalizing things that most of us know to be lies, even bald-faced lies that fly in the face of videotaped evidence. And so the net effect, which I worry about in the same way that I worry about soil erosion and the disappearance of the rainforest and the death of species, is that the more we accept lies, not just tell them, but the more we normalize them or shrug them off, the less we have to work with. So we're forfeiting a great deal in even treating lies because they come from high places as something for which we have to give the respect due a differing opinion. It makes me crazy when they say, well, we just want to hear opinions from both sides. First of all, there are 365 sides, there aren't just two. But secondly, that neutrality, as someone, maybe Miroslav Volk said this, neutrality is complicity. Maybe Hannah Arendt said it, I don't remember who it was. But that if we remain neutral in the face of lies rather than challenging them, then we are participating in them. And it, this comes up for me, I have to say, around the 4th of July. It's really painful these days to think about how we continue publicly to celebrate the great American myth rather than the dark, sorrowful facts of all the massacres and genocide and what it has cost so many people to have some of us live a way of life that we now feel we, they now feel committed to protect. And our accepting that lie is what is breaking the backs of our black sisters and brothers, our indigenous sisters and brothers. It's a lie that white people have swallowed and then simultaneously foisted on others to bear the burden of. As you said, we're in a moment of reckoning right now with the, the chasm that our lies about nationhood about ourselves, our history, our families, in some cases, the havoc that that wreaks. And how to tell that story to children, I think, is a really important, interesting challenge. You don't want to just start out telling a five-year-old about how many Indians were killed on the Trail of Tears, Indians being in quotes, but because that word itself was a lie, but, but to nuance it in such a way as to say, 
People groups have always been at odds with each other, and possessiveness and greed have always been a human problem. And also in the middle of all that, there has been nobility and courage. And so let's just talk about how mixed our stories are and how to help each other through the thickets. Right. Complexity. As you said, there are 365 ways of approaching an issue, and it's possible to acknowledge the pain and the resilience. I think about Toni Morrison's claims that the wonder of it all is how resilient African Americans are, that that's the story she was committed to telling, that their loves, their triumphs, their defeats, their friendships, their betrayals, their human existence in the world was worthy of having that story told. That seems like the story of truth that is accessible to children and to those of us who are adults that are trying really hard right now to learn a different and better way. Right. I think about it. One of J.D. Salinger's titles of a story was For Esme in Love and Squalor. And I think that's where we live, in love and squalor. So, and complexity was a really key word in what you said, which is that truth is many faceted and the truth of a thing requires a sustained gaze so that its complexities can unfold. Truth takes time and lies are simple because they don't take much time. You can do them in a soundbite. Right. It's that ideological shorthand. I think that idea of sustaining our gaze even when we would rather look away, is a good segue to the fourth and final word that I'd like to discuss with you. And that word is awe, A-W-E. What do you associate with awe? Let's just get awesome out of the way. (laughs) Good. Thank you. (laughs) I think people say it less now than they did, but it has become sort of a buzzword among kids especially, but lots of older people use it too. Oh, that's awesome. And I've stopped even being a curmudgeon about it because it's not always the time to have that fight. You pick your battles. But I do think that to use it in its original sense or to come back to the word awe when somebody uses awesome is to try to restore some notion of what Abraham Heschel called radical amazement, that an appropriate way to live into the world is in a place to come back to the center, which is the place of radical amazement, where you really do say from your deepest self, oh my God. And it's an address and it's an exclamation of epiphany. So I really appreciate people who reintroduce the word awe in that kind of context. Emily Dickinson was good with it. She It was one of her favorite words. I remember the beginning of one of her poems is about a grave. Someone has died. Ample make this bed, make this bed with awe. In it, wait till judgment break, excellent and fair. But make this bed with awe is expressive to me of times when I stood at a graveside and felt like I was right on the edge of mystery. I've I've taken a great interest in near-death experience stories. Lots of people have them because many more people are being resuscitated now. But that mysterious edge between life and death, that riparian edge where we learn something, is a great place to go to restore awe, that there are things about our very deepest selves in our lives that we don't know and can't know, and all we can do is acknowledge them. In humility to use a word that's come up several times. 
You know, I, I really am grateful that you brought up death because I, I did want to ask you about the relationship between death and awe. You've written several books about the end of life, both facing the end of one's own life and accompanying those who are dying. And as I was reacquainting myself with those books, of course, I was thinking about our pandemic moment and the ways in which accompanying the dying has been restricted and prevented in so many ways. And we, we see these images on TV, in the newspaper, online, of military convoys with the dead or mass graves for the bodies unclaimed that have to be buried apart because of contagion. That is a humble moment when we come back to the earth humus. How can we stand in awe and awe and honor of those who are dying now so that we can remember that we are always dying? Yes. Those mass graves happen in every epidemic. Every century has seen an epidemic, several and usually a pandemic. So humankind has carried that reality for a long time. And it is a reminder of what grace and goodness there is when we're able to gather and, as one, our pastor put it, walk each other home. I love hospice work. I've been a hospice volunteer for some years, and I feel at that privilege of walking people home. But of course, there are sudden deaths. A dear friend of ours just suddenly died last week to everyone's astonishment. And when that happens, you're left with a different kind of awe. Like, wait, wait, how can this be? Yesterday he was here. Today he is not. But I think in this, what you bring up about the pandemic and having to witness others' deaths from the distance of the television screen or knowing, I mean, my husband and I had this conversation. If one of us got sick and went to the hospital, the other probably wouldn't be able to be there. We don't want to die alone. Nobody wants to die alone. So I think you, at the beginning of our conversation, you brought up the hospital system. I think to find ways to stand with the first responders, the healthcare workers, the people who are dying, even if we can't walk into those rooms, is to say, we are in a big circle around you and we're not going to let you forget it. Learning how to circle up in whatever virtual and actual ways we can imagine. It's a real challenge to the imagination to honor death in the way that it's coming. It's often miserable. I think about the the plague in London in the 17th century when so many people were dead in the streets, they didn't know what to do with the bodies, so they were chucking them in the river, which, of course, polluted the water. Um, it's not pretty, but I think to be able to stand in the midst of death and claim life is, in a sense, what we're always being called to do. Yes. Awe sometimes gets related to fear, and, of course, fear of death is, is common enough, but it's a fear that has this energy to it, it seems to me, that doesn't keep you in one place. And we have this phrase, you mentioned Christian ease earlier, and I, I loved that, fear of the Lord, which is sometimes dangled over people as a form of punishment, as a way of making people afraid to do anything and keeps them stuck. But then we have in Proverbs, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom which seems an entirely different kind of fear, like that sense of fear and awe coming together. How are awe and wisdom related? How do they 
get us somewhere. Well, I think awe and wisdom are rooted in humility. And humility is related to fear. It is to say, God is great. God is incomprehensible. I am very small. And to couple that with, I am deeply loved and seen and heard and recognized and cherished and called into the presence of God, that's the great mystery, right? So I think Evelyn Waugh put it in more human, I mean, more ordinary terms when he said in Brideshead Revisited, to love one other human being is the beginning of wisdom. So entering into love is fearful. I remember on my wedding night thinking one of us will watch the other die. It's so sobering. But love and death always have come together in literature, as you know, that eros and thanatos are always mingled, that, that what we love we will also see through unto death. Even if we part company, you know, there's so many divorces, and so I'm not talking about how I'm not idealizing marriage in that way. But, but things come to an end. And knowing that, we live in that bracket and say we're on this journey. There's the mystery of what comes beyond. And I do think that those near-death experience stories are really helpful to me, that we get little peaks that it's okay. People come back from those with a deepened sense of purpose and no fear of death. Not all of them, but most of them. So once you know that you're going to die, it reframes what you're doing here. Once you really know it, we all know we're going to die. But if you've ever had to come face to face with the fact that I might actually be dying, then you reclaim your life on new terms. So I think it's good to meditate on death. And we are certainly being asked to do that now. Any one of us could get it. Any one of us could get it seriously. Any one of us could give it to anyone. So what has always been true is more visibly true. That's right. And thinking about breath, which we've talked about, sometimes I find myself thinking my heart is just beating and beating and beating. It's working for me constantly. And one day it will stop. And that, of course, gets yoked to my breath and those memento mori, remember that you're dying, those remembrances of death don't have to be morbid in that kind of, in that connotation that you're doing something wrong or obsessive with the grave that's inappropriate, but are actually acknowledging a profound truth. And it brings me to this idea of beauty as well that awe is wrapped up in beauty, life, death, love is wrapped up in beauty. So my last question for you, what is awe inspiring to you right now? Well, there are so many things. On days when I feel most deeply discouraged about the state of the planet, and I take a long look at the list of things that are overwhelming and fatiguing, one way I call myself back is, first of all, to say we're here on a journey. It's a difficult journey. We get to go home. So that's my theology part of it. But at another level, I think about so, so many organizations, neighborhood efforts, you know, this vast network of human effort that is going into meeting local needs. Plant this tree, you know, help give birth to this child bring some food to this particular homeless shelter, whatever it is, but 
do the thing you can do. And there are so many of those. And so much of it is so quiet that I think of Doctors Without Borders who go into places like the Ebola crisis. I think of the people in the hospitals in New York without sufficient PPE, knowing they might get a deadly disease. I think about people who are just quietly working at those factory farms, having to make decisions every day about how to keep themselves and their families safe and also make a living. That helps me really be amazed and grateful for the accumulation of human courage and kindness that is so much quieter than all the political noise around it. And that's what gives me hope. I think we have to enter into the political arena. I'm not one of those people who thinks faith and politics should be separate. I don't think they can be. But to get beyond the isms is to say, who's doing good in the world? I want to be among them. Thank you. This conversation has been so generous, comforting, challenging, and a real balm. Thank you. Thank you. And may I ask you to conclude our episode today with one more poem? I think I'm going to read the poem that we thought about doing at the beginning. It comes back to one of the themes you've brought up several times, which is the life of the earth and connecting our own lives to the life of the earth and knowing that its life is our life. I should preface this by saying that at one point, because I had done a lot of interdisciplinary work and I had co-taught with a biology professor, I was asked rather foolishly, I think, to if I would teach a biology course, to which I said, could I remind you that my degree was in comparative literature? <laughs> I'm not a biologist. <laughs> I read biology. I think it's fascinating. But they said, we just want to experiment with this biology for everybody. What's biology that everyone should know? And you could stand there and model it. There's some biology all of us really need to know right now. So if you don't know what mitosis is, let's talk. <laughs> so I wish that I'd had more chances to do it, but this I wrote after teaching that, and it's called Basic Biology Course Review, but it was written out of a place of compassion for the student and me to just try to come back to the center about why do we learn about life process. If you forget what axons do or how a virus invades a cell, remember this, that light becomes food, that the seasons rhyme a different word each time, turning soil into living song, that all things work together, even death, even decay, that this is the way of the world we got. What is given grows by grace and care and knows what it needs, that life is strong and precarious, full of devices and desires. What we hold in common may not be owned, Control is costly. Close attention is the reverence due whatever lives and moves, mutant and quick and clever, that our neighbors, the plankton, the white pine, the busy nematodes, serve us best in reciprocal gratitude. What they receive, they give. The way the heart accepts what the vein delivers and sends it on again, again. Thank you. You're so welcome. What a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. 
We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.